Good morning, One Life. Good morning. Uh, it is good to be with you all today. And um, I said this in first service too. This is the type of service that I, I wish the singing happened after the sermon. Um, because assuming none of the rest of you spent 10 hours in this chapter this week, uh, you may not have heard how much uh, of a sermon already has occurred, how much good news we've already heard, and how connected it is to the text. And so thanks to Brian for that set of uh, worship songs. Um, but it is good to be with you on this sunny day. Uh, we are walking through the book of Ephesians. Uh, one of Paul's letters to the followers of Christ. And you may have heard us say that this was probably a circular letter and that it was passed from town to town, not necessarily specifically to the church in Ephesus. But I also discovered these past few weeks preparing the sermon that Paul is a very circular writer. <laughs> he, like, loops and he repeats himself and offshoots and comes back and did I mention this and this is how this connects to that and this is what, that, what I mean by that. So I'd encourage you, as we're in this series, if you haven't already, or to do it again, uh, to take 20 or 30 minutes and read the book of Ephesians in one sitting and uh, see what links and loops you notice. So two weeks ago, Rich introduced the themes of being rooted and renewed, that in his uh, opening chapter, opening paragraph, Paul makes this 12-verse long run-on sentence um, prayer, gushing about what God has made possible for us, that Christ is reconciling us and transforming us. And last week, Greg talked about the power that it takes to destroy something in comparison to the power it takes to build something, how often when we're at the end of our rope or we're feeling threatened or frazzled, we go into self-protective mode and see others as adversaries, as enemies, and we seek to, in Greg's words, disrupt basic life functions with the visual popping someone's trachea. Didn't leave my mind this week. <laughs> um, and while it takes less power to destroy and significantly more power to build, to rebuild, that we can count on God to provide that power. God provides the love that is costly and dreadful. God has already made that ours through the resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ. It is available to us. So today, we're looking at chapter 2 of Ephesians, as Paul loops around and connects some of these ideas. Um, as a side note, I started working on this sermon 16 years ago when I was in college in fourth semester Greek, when I wrote a 30-page single-spaced exegetical paper on verses 1 through 7. We're not getting into that kind of detail today, don't worry, um, but this text is dear to me. So uh, last month when I was sick and Greg jumped in and took over, uh, took, took my sermon, and we were looking for one I could trade him for. I jumped at the chance for Ephesians 2 to spend more time with this text. And I'm not sure that I land in the same place as I did then, but uh, there is a lot here. I'm excited. I'm, I'm amped <laughs> this morning. Excited to get into it with you. So uh, first, let's pray. God, you are the only king forever. And your love is rich and strong and endures forever. And that is the first word, and that is the last word. Uh, may we be able to hear whatever falls in between. In your name, amen. So Ephesians 2, 
verses 1 through 22. It'll be on the screen behind me, and I think it's on the half sheet in your bulletin handout. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth or citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. These first three verses are rough. They feel like bad news. Paul starts off with, you were dead. Not you were doing all right, you were hanging in there, you were doing the best you had with what you had. Not you got a gold star for your work. Not you got chosen first when they were picking teams. You were dead. But there's this implication of activity. You were walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. There was activity. So dead has this connotation more like dead in the water, spinning your wheels. Um, Helpless, powerless, fruitless. So my first question for you all is when have you felt dead helpless, powerless, fruitless, spinning your wheels like you were dead in the water. And then there's this string of words that seem connected to me. Disobedience, our desires, our ideas, wrath. Like the course of this world, the way of doing things our way, walking in the, the way we were living according to the 
way of the world, as opposed to God's way, leads towards disobedience. Our own ideas lead towards wrath. And honestly, what's more frustrating than someone or something getting in the way of what you want? I think of myself in a car in traffic. (laughs) This may or may not be familiar to you. I won't say we all do this, but clearly everyone who's going slower than I am is not paying attention, and clearly everyone who's going faster than I am is reckless. (laughs) So every other driver and every other car on the road, no one else knows how to drive. (laughs) Uh, traffic evokes my wrath. And it's safe there, right? I can say whatever I want, and it just stays inside the confines of my car. They don't hear me telling them to do it or don't. This is tied to what Greg talked about last week, when the ways that we want to control other people to do things our way. It leads towards wrath. So even in this list, though, um, of, of this, like, bad news, heavy, heavy news. Uh, There's a unity. All of you once lived this way. The rest of humanity was, were, were objects of children of wrath. And this unity will matter later. But this is a heavy, gross way to start this chapter, to make this point. Paul is reminding his readers of how hopeless, how lost they once had been. And to me, it feels, uh, I mean, so when I was 20 and I was had my stack of photocopies of quadruple-spaced Greek text that I had to, like, all my translation tools out and, like, the range of meaning for this word and the part of speech for this word. And word by word, it took me probably 45 minutes to do the first three verses. And by that point, I was just, this is terrible. Like, I felt the despair of it. We are hopeless. It felt like sitting in a mud puddle, just smearing crap around, like, ugh. And then comes verse 4. Ha-de-theos, but God. It's not just the best interruption, the best transition, but God. Your situation is not the end of the story. Your feeling is not the end of the story. It's just the intro, the setup for, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. I'd always heard the bad news side of our sin nature, and maybe that goes without saying, like how could there be a good news side of our sin? Let me introduce you to a theologian I've coming to love, Robert Farrar Capone, who, it's good news. Grace perennially waits for us to accept our destruction and in that acceptance to discover the power of the resurrection and the life. Grace makes all infirmities occasions for glory. We are not left on our own in the mud (laughs) or in the wrath, in the disobedience. That's exactly where God meets us. And there's a longer one also from him. The life of grace is not an effort on our part to achieve a goal we set ourselves. It is a continually renewed attempt simply to believe that someone else has done all of the achieving that is needed and to live in relationship with that person, whether we achieve it or not. 
If that doesn't seem like much to you, you're right, it isn't. And as a matter of fact, the life of grace is even less than that. It's not even our life at all, but the life of that someone else, rising like a tide in the ruins of our death. The thing I'm loving about reading this theologian uh, is he takes the very familiar words of scripture. I was raised in the church, and I've been able to say, like, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And I don't know how many stickers and gold stars I got for being able to recite this verse, but I didn't even know what it meant anymore. And now I'm God is merciful, bringing life. Verse, where did I lay him off? Eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. In this gift language, Capon says, we are saved gratis by grace. We do nothing and we deserve nothing. It is all absolutely and without qualification one huge, hilarious gift. I don't know about you, but I'd lost sight of that, the gift of the gospel, the insanity of the gospel, the absurdity, the nonsense of, of what God's relationship to us is. It is a gift of God, a hilarious gift. The initiative is all God's. The power is all God's. The effort is all God's. Even the, any, any part that we have to do with that, in verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. So what's that faith part? What's the part that we do? Our faith is a special kind of activity, like turning on a light. I was thinking, trying to find a good metaphor seems to me like turning on a light. So, like, imagine one of those movie scenes where the guy's trying to win over the girl, and he's traveled to her house, and he's out uh, doing something outside her window to get her attention. He's making a speech, or he's singing, or he's holding a boombox up in the air, um, all to see if she'll turn her bedroom light on as a sign of her acceptance of his advances. So this got me thinking about light switches. Some are up, down, on, off. You flip said switch, and the power flows to the light bulb apparatus. I do not understand electricity. Then there are those lamp switches that uh, you turn the knob and you don't know when it's going to click, but it clicks unless you're turning it the wrong way and it never clicks and you realize that you're doing it the wrong way. Um, <laughs> maybe I'm the one who's not done that. Uh, and uh, then there are those progressive sliders, the dealy babs like we have on these lamps over in the side room where you push the, this thing that way and you don't know when it's going to, oh, it comes on, it gets brighter. Oh, it's giving, you don't, oh, there it is. Uh, but, like, no part of this is something that I did. I didn't wire the lamp. I didn't wire the building. I didn't set up any of these towers or cables. I didn't get to repeat. I don't know how electricity works or what happens before that, like water going over a dam. Um, I did none of the above. Um, all I'm doing is letting the light shine. Some step, some, my activity is something just that allows, permits, receives, accepts, use all these words kind of interchangeably, but lets the power do what it has always been doing, and that is hurtling towards us. Hallelujah. Verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. The word here is poema, where we get poem. 
We could say we are God's poem, God's masterpiece, God's work of art. We are where God demonstrates his immense mercy, kindness, love, and healing creativity. And in the New Revised Standard Version, they translate the same word poema as, for we are what he has made us. And I was like, wait, what has he made us? Which is used in verse 5. He has made us alive in Christ. The verb from verse 5 is, soon as I opoiesin, you're welcome, (laughs) uh, made us alive. Literally straight up. You see the poie there in the middle? It's the same made, the made thing. And zao is from zoe, where we get zoo and zoology, life, living things. This verb means made us alive. God made us. What has he made us? He made us alive. He creatively fashioned us alive, and this is his masterpiece. It's the kind of thing that only God could make. Think of like an artist that you'd know anywhere, Picasso or Rembrandt or the hay bales guy. I still don't remember his name, uh, but he painted a lot of hay bales. We'd recognize it in a museum or in a gallery, anywhere we'd see it. Or like in audio terms, you'd know if you were listening to the Beach Boys or Led Zeppelin or Jay-Z's voice. <laughs> the artistry of God that cannot be replicated by anyone else is the move where he makes dead things alive. And it's in his name. In Exodus 33, when Moses asks the Lord, please show me your glory, in verse 19 The Lord responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And in the next chapter, Exodus 34, when this interaction actually takes place, and God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes by, covers him with his hand. Exodus 34, verse 6 reads, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's in God's nature, it's in God's name to be gracious and to show mercy. And any works, verse 10, we are God's workmanship, doing good works that God prepared in advance for us to do in Christ Jesus. God even provides Uh, all the initiative and prepares all the good works. So the second half of the chapter, Ephesians 2, is now the result of God's initiative. What happens when God is gracious to whom he will be gracious and shows mercy to whom he will show mercy? Because who are we to say otherwise? When I turn this lamp on, I don't get to decide who it shines on unless I build some barriers. Chapter 2, verse 11 on, Paul is drawing on this us-them mentality that was deeply embedded in first century culture. The Jews and the Gentiles were, were separate people. And it's not just limited to first century Middle Eastern culture, right? You see this everywhere. The mentality of us versus them. You're either in or you're out. Those who are near and those who are far. Citizens and foreigners. All this language that Paul uses, we are very familiar with today. That's my second question. When have you felt like you were on the outside looking in? When has it felt like everyone else was in on a joke or in on a secret except for you? 
When has someone else had access to something that you didn't? When you lacked the fill-in-the-blank thing that would make you feel okay? When you weren't enough? What was that like, and what did it cost? Uh, when I was in college, a friend of mine from another school used the phrase, cool card. That was so-and-so's cool card. This girl had trendy glasses. That's her cool card. This person rides a skateboard everywhere. That's his cool card. And I came back to my own school, mentioned it to a friend of mine in passing. I was like, have you ever heard this cool card? And like, we're talking about it. And then she goes, I want a ticket to the cool club. <laughs> and I loved, I laughed, and I've never forgotten it. I can hear her saying it still. And whether she was being ironic or not, like, she got it. She got the idea of it and the feel of it, the, I want a ticket to the cool club. What does that feel like, and what does it cost? Here's my third question, is the flip side. When have you felt like you were on the inside? And maybe you needed to keep others out. How did you measure or determine what made someone in or out? What were you trying to protect? What was that like, and what did it cost? In other words, who is your us, and who is your them? It's even in our political affiliations right now. I'm right, and you're all idiots. <laughs> the other, not you all. Uh, who, whichever party I'm in, I'm right, and the others are idiots, clearly. I'm not very good at listening. That's a side note. Where I was going with this was René Girard, a 20th century historian, literary critic, philosopher, theologian, Renaissance man, wrote about mimetic desire, that we borrow our desire from others. So you see this when like kids are in a nursery where toys aren't specifically theirs, but two kids, one toy, wait, you want that? I want that, <laughs> right? Um, and in a zero-sum game in which your gain is my loss, then you cost me something. You are in my way. If somebody cuts me off in traffic, I'm one car length further back. <laughs> Obviously, there's no other reasonable response. Um, but this mimetic rivalry devolves, escalates both, into violence. You threaten me and I take you out. And if there are more than two persons or two parties involved, the next step is the scapegoat mechanism. The only way these two can be reconciled is if they find a third party to reject and hate. I can resolve my tension with you if we agree to hate party three. An agreed upon shared enemy. This dynamic exists in every relational system, right? Families with a black sheep, school settings with the kid who gets picked on, work colleagues, who's the weakest link, nations, ethnicities, you name it. We figure out the pecking order and the weakest link so that we can channel our violence and wrath toward them, dismiss them, destroy them, reject them, whatever form that takes. We make them an other so as to save our own skin, to spare ourselves the pain of examining ourselves and seeing what is ugly within us and really only buy ourselves a little time until the cycle repeats itself and we have to find the next victim to ostracize, to bear our shame. And human history is riddled with this sin of ostracizing, othering, annihilating some person or people group out of self-preservation 
It's at the core of racism, sexism, classism, nationalism, you name it. I make, or you and I make, agree to make, some fill-in-the-blank them less so that I or we can feel better about ourselves. Ephesians 2, you once were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship. Verse 13, the same dynamic happens as verse 4, but God, verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christ stepped into the wrath place in the middle and took it so that we don't have to find enemies in each other anymore or draw lines. There is no more them. You, we are all us now. We were all dead. God made us alive. Christ himself is our peace. No matter which category we fell in in the first place, if, if your first century listeners who were uh, Jewish followers of Christ, Gentiles were starting to hear the gospel, and they were like, we have different ways of understanding what it is to follow. And Paul says, Christ has already done it. You don't have to. Not some of you are adopted, and some of you are on a better seating. Christ leveled the playing field. Christ was the scapegoat. Christ himself is our peace. He leveled the field about who was in or out, far or near, and took away that hostility so that we would all be united and not keep othering peoples, turning them into thems. Now, I don't know about you, but I am terrible at this. I'm, I understand I'm saved, I understand I'm forgiven, and I still find ways. I don't think about it. It's like knee-jerk to, to make enemies out of people, to be in traffic and think, you're in my way to be in my house and think, you're not doing things my way. And Capon has this beautiful word on even our failing. Trust him. And when you have done that, you are living the life of grace. No matter what happens to you in the course of that trusting, no matter how many waverings you may have, no matter how many suspicions that you have bought a poke with no pig in it, no matter how heaviness and sadness your no matter how much heaviness and sadness your lapses vices indispositions and bratty whining may cause you you simply believe that somebody else by his death and resurrection has made it all right and you just say thank you and shut up the whole slop closet full of mildewed performances which is by the way all you have to offer is simply your death it is jesus who is your life if he refused to condemn you because your works were rotten, he certainly isn't going to flunk you because your faith isn't so hot. You can fail utterly, therefore, and still live the life of grace. You can fold up spiritually, morally, or intellectually and still be safe. Because at the very worst, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection and the life, that just makes you his cup of tea. Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> I mean, that is some good news. And in verse 19, Paul says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
this building grows in the Lord. We don't have to drum up the power to build it. God is the one who builds us together into a living temple. And this is nonsense. <laughs> uh, it's nonsense. It's just the best news ever. And cause for celebration. I'll close with one more Capen long quote because it's just did I say this part? I forget if I said it this one or first. I'd gotten so used to scripture that I didn't know what it meant anymore. And, and he puts it in a way that I get it. That I'm, I'm floored by it. Hallelujah. Grace is the celebration of life, relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world. It is a floating, cosmic bash, shouting its way through the streets of the universe, flinging the sweetness of its cassations to every window, pounding at every door in a hilarity beyond all liking and happening until the prodigals come out at last and dance and the elder brothers finally take their fingers out of their ears. And I have known that. I have felt the prodigalness. I have felt the elder brotherness. Maybe you have as well. So as the worship team comes back up, my questions for you center around, like, what needs to be next? Are you familiar with your death? Are you familiar with your forgiveness? Are you floored by the mercy and love of God? Would you rather build a wall around a lamp? Or is it relieving to not have to self-protect anymore, but God, God handles who, who gets grace and mercy? So my question is, how have you known death? When have you felt on the outside looking in? When have you felt like you were on the inside? What did either of those cost? And what is God inviting you to mourn or to celebrate today? Let's pray. God, you are good in a way that we cannot fathom. Will you be very near us today as we go from here?